Amen. Well, thank you, um, Luke. That was a, a great introduction. I feel like I, um, it's a privilege to, uh, to be able to preach. It's a privilege to, to be able to even prepare for the, uh, for the sermon this morning. I feel like the Lord really worked on my own heart. And uh, uh, like you said, I am not a professional. I come from the business world. And uh, I, I, uh, uh, a little small smidgen of grace this morning will be, uh, would be great. So, uh, so yeah, but. Anyway, in, in, 2000 and, in 2015, I, uh, me and my wife really got the opportunity of a lifetime. We, we were on staff of the college ministry, and, and we got the opportunity to lead a uh, mission trip to New Zealand. Um, New Zealand is a, 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 beautiful, a beautiful place. We're a, we're a real um, a Lord of the Rings fans in our, our family, so we're excited about, uh, excited about going uh, over over to New Zealand, and so we um, we prepared and took 14 students with us, and uh, we get over there, had a great time. It was a seven-week mission trip, and and uh, phenomenal time, growing in our faith, growing in uh, the the students' faith. We uh, ministered on the campus, and and um, it was customary the church that hosts us there. The last couple of days, they usually. Um, ask, uh, several of the guys in the church want to take us hunting in the New Zealand bush and the, uh, and the, uh, the rough area of New Zealand. Of course, I did a little hiking over there, uh, but uh, they were excited about taking us. And so all the guys that, uh, that, was, that were involved in our, um, um, all the American guys as well as about 14 New Zealand guys load up and we go over to this guy's ranch, all right, and we're uh, it's about 4 a.m. We're going to hunt some. We're going to hunt some goats. Okay, and so go- goats are are pretty. Um, uh, they're they're overpopulated in New Zealand, and they're kind of a nuisance. And so we um, we get out get out there at 4 a.m. and they split us up into two teams, and I get to be I get the joy of being the leader of one of the teams, and we head out and we hike for about four four hours. Okay. We, get, we finally see a pack of goats, and we get excited. Gun laws are a little bit different in New Zealand. We had one gun for six guys, um, but we, uh, uh, we decided to take our aim and, we, uh, and exercise our dominion over the animals, and, uh, and we got us a couple of goats, actually three of them. But during the hoopla of the adrenaline rush that was hiking in New, in New Zealand, killing a couple of goats... I lost my way. I really didn't know we were, where we were at. I, I, I had uh, lost my orientation of kind of the, the terrain. And if you know New Zealand, it's not, it's, it's not Kansas. Um, it's kind of pretty rugged and raw. And, and um, if we got a picture, I, th- I think I got a picture of kind of what we're looking at here. Um, this is kind of one area of it. And if you go to the next uh, next picture there. Uh, that's actually me, and this is us uh, field dressing the ghost. But uh, anyways, the, the back of uh, this was the entire um, landscape was, was this. And we were lost. I mean, I, and, and with full confidence, I, I, in my own head, I didn't let other people know that we were lost. But I, I kind of made the decision in confidence saying, hey, this is the way to go. And so we started hiking, and we hiked for about four maybe five hours, and at that point in time, I, I realized that we, 
we could be in trouble. And um, I remember what the ranch hand said as I left. He said, we own four miles in that direction. We own 10 miles in that direction. Just don't go the wrong way in that direction. You're going to be real lost. Well, I, I think that's the way we went. And, and as, as we sit, after five hours have passed, we're hiking out of there. And I, I sit down and I, 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 I tell the guys, we've got to take a break. I need to take a quick nap or something and just figure out what we're doing. And I just sit down and prayed. And I, I said, God, if, if you get me out of this, um, I'll worship you forever. You know, one of those type of, one of, one of those type of prayers. And as I raised my head up, it's like something out of the movie, guys. I, I can't explain it any better than this, but it was a little red dot just starts moving across the, across the horizon. Now, we hadn't seen anybody. I mean, we, we, we hadn't seen nothing. We hadn't seen another human. We've all, all we've seen is, is uh, goats and bushes, all right? We've not seen nothing else. But there's this little red dot moving across the horizon. Me and my buddy Tyler, I look up and I see, look at Tyler. Tyler saw the same thing, so it wasn't a mirage. I was like, well, we've got we, we to got, we run this guy down. And we just take off for about a 300-yard sprint. And we, we holler at this guy and, 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 and run him down. We get there. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, the movie The Water Boy. I don't know if you remember Farmer Fran. That was the guy driving the car. I mean, literally, you could not understand a word he said. He was in New Zealand, deep, thick New Zealand dialect. He was driving a, a about a 1972 Datsun pickup truck. And we get all our guys and we, we, we get in this pickup truck and say, hey, man, do you, do you know where we're at? Can you take us to this ranch, to this, to the, to the main headquarters of this ranch? And they're like, yeah, you're, you're about seven miles away. Uh, you're pretty far out here. And it's the opposite direction. Of course, I was, uh, you know, I was wrong there. But we all jumped in the back of this pickup truck and we're heading down this dirt road. And it hit me. This is crazy. This is the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. I've got three dead goats, six guys in the back of a Datsun pickup truck, and this dude that's driving me, man, who in the holy smokes, my mom would not approve of this. Like, I am out here, people. And then it was just like a... Looking out the, the vast terrain of New Zealand and the situation I was in, I felt the mighty nature of God. And I felt how big he was. And I felt how tiny and small I was. The mighty nature of God on that day was unbelievable. And I, and I, I thank the Lord for that experience pretty often. It, it really the experience in New Zealand, there were a couple of moments where I was like, man, God, I'm really behind the eight ball here. Help me out. And God provided. This morning we are talking about the mighty nature of God and kind of these four different names of God. And I'm excited about speaking about this one. Um, Isaiah 9-6 kind of illustrates these four names. But I want to pose a question as we begin to pray. Have you guys ever felt that? Have you ever felt that mighty nature? Have you ever looked out on something and said, wow, I'm really small. And God, you're really big and you're really good. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into our text. 
God, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. God, I'm a flawed man. Um, I'm a sinner. And uh, I know I'm saved by your grace. Help us this morning understand your word through a flawed human. God, I just ask that you be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, come and reign in our lives and our hearts. God, I pray that you would illuminate your word and Isaiah, help us to pull out little details that change our lives. God, be with us now. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at the passage, Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. Of course, Isaiah 9, 6 is kind of what we're launching from, the four, the, really the four aspects, the four names of God that we've been looking at. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, and I get the opportunity to look at the mighty nature of God, but Isaiah 6, 1 through 9 is, is the, the word afresh for us this morning, and so, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 1, uh, 6, 1 through 7, so here, here we go. At the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And I said, Woe is me! For I, am a, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had, t- that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Well, look at this passage, pretty meaty passage, a lot of detail in it. And from start to finish of, uh, of uh, hopefully our time this morning, uh, everything in this passage is symbolic of something about to come in the future. Set the context of the passage, we see here that the, it says, The year King Uzziah died. I don't know if you guys have a, a good Bible trivia knowledge, but there's a lot of kings in Israel's uh, history. King Uzziah was, was a pretty decent king. Uh, he had established a, a really uh, strong reign in Israel, very secure, prosperous uh, time as, uh, as the king. And he, uh, he had done a lot of good things, but towards the end of his, his reign, he began to falter a little bit, being to walk away from the Lord, doing, making some decisions apart from, from God's uh, wisdom and provision. And it was really kind of a transitional time, so it was the year that he died. So you, Israel's kind of looking around saying, well, what are we going to do here? Our leader's gone. Uh, what's next? What, what's going to happen? And so there's a traditional, or there's a kind of a transition moment. 
And whenever transitions like this happen, there's kind of an uncertainty and insecurity regarding the leadership and really the future plight of the country as a whole. And so Isaiah sees this. So that's the backdrop, the context of our passage. Isaiah sees this, and Isaiah is the prophet of the kingdom. Prophet back in the day was really kind of the mouthpiece of God to the people. He spoke on behalf of God. They didn't have necessarily the full word of God. They had the, 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 uh, the, the Tanakh, I guess, um, but they did not have like uh, uh, the, the word. So Isaiah was the, was the mouthpiece of God to the people. And he says this, he says um, in verse uh, in verse 2, excuse me, he, he kind of describes uh, God there. He says, sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, me and my wife, we tried to get into that movie or that uh, Netflix show, The Crown. I don't know if you guys have ever, ever seen that, but uh, we couldn't, uh, I'm not a, we're not a real huge British royalty people. We're, we, we're not in, we're I'm, I'm a southern country boy through and through. It was just kind of hard to do that, pretty, pretty hard transition. But w- one of the things that I've noticed as just watching the crown and even British royalty in general is, is they, the status um, and really the, the way they uh, adorn themselves and their apparel is next level. Um, and it, it, it really kind of shows, hey, look, uh, we're important here and we have authority. The, as we look at some of these details here in Isaiah 6, it says, number one, that, that God is on the throne. There's a special head of the kingdom type of seat that he sits in. Authority is granted to him. It says that he's high and lifted up. He's higher, he's supreme than all other people, all, over, all other seraphim that are there. And it says that his tra- the train of his robe fills the temple. It's pretty majestic in the imagery here, but the, the train filling his robe really was a, was a detail that made, was very, very interesting to me. The tra- train of his robe in, in Isaiah 6 is symbolic for God's presence filling all of existence, filling the temple, filling the heart of man as well as filling all of um, existence and so if God is everywhere if he fills every space um, uh, it, it, this this train of the robe is is kind of symbolic of that and two things also that we we look here and we see is that that as we as we study the passage there's two different types of Lord in this passage one that's uppercased and one that's lowercased. The one that's uppercased is, um, is an interesting kind of form of how someone speaks about God, but uh, it's a title. It's like Mr. or Dr. or um, uh, Mrs. It's the Hebrew word for Almighty One or Yahweh. It's the, it's the unspoken, kind of the unspoken name that God is referred to. And another form, the the lowercase form of Lord here, that's kind of given this strength to on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple, is 
the lowercase, which is more of a personal name, like Bill or Jake or Jimmy or something like that. The, the, in the Hebrew word of that is Adonai, meaning sovereign one. Both of them simply means a lot of the same thing, but they're, uh, but, but they're strengthening the argument of God's almighty nature here in Isaiah. Maybe the imagery didn't, help, didn't solidify the fact that God is on the throne, lifted high and lifted up, or, or his, his robe is filling the temple. The, the titles are even given stronger depth and foundation and meaning to who this guy really is. He's almighty. And those two titles kind of give even more foundation to his characteristics and who he is. They really describe two words, and now, I'm a, like I said, I'm a, I'm a country boy from Livingston, Tennessee, so I'm, we're, get, we're getting into some $5 words here, okay? The first word is omnipotence, all right? Omni, meaning all, potent, meaning powerful. All, powerful. Second word is omnipresence, means all, present, omnipresent. Kind of a uh, understanding of the almighty nature of God, you've got to think about these two attributes. So if God is all-powerful, what is he powerful over? Well, or what are the forms of power? Well, the first form of power is force, pure force. Mark 4, 35 through 41 talks about Jesus calming the storm. That's the reference uh, uh, passage here in Isaiah is that, is that Mark 4, 35 through 41 where the, 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 the storm is raging, Jesus is asleep, and he calms the storm by force. The Greek word for this is dynamite. English word is dynamite. It's kind of this physical power that we can experience. You know, in... Back at college, I had, to, I had the opportunity to, to play college football. Uh, beyond popular belief, I wasn't very good. Uh, but I did have the opportunity to play. I was on the team for a little bit. Um, but we all, had, uh, we all had that welcome to college football moment. And I had mine. The, the second day of full pad practices, I, I remember, uh, honestly, like it was yesterday, I, I was uh, I played wide receiver, and uh, for the ladies that uh, uh, don't can't relate, to, uh, receivers got the ball and ran the ball a lot. Okay, and so, uh, uh, but I caught a pass across the middle, and uh, of the of, of the field, and I was met there by our middle linebacker. His name was Torian Sikabu. He was uh, he had traps like a jungle gym. He was built like a 1980s Rolodex. He uh, he was, he was a physical specimen, and he folded me up like a Kroger lawn chair. <laughs> I'd never been hit, and I've never felt the force of a man ever before like that. He hit me so hard, I, 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 and, and my dad always told me, get up and make him, and, and don't let them see you uh, struggling here. Make them know that it didn't hurt you. Oh, he's hurting. But I got up anyway, hopped back, ran to the, the huddle. And the next day, all of our practice was just filmed. Uh, we watched it on film, and everybody saw me just get destroyed. But I've never felt a physical force 
like that before, and I'm sure you guys have, have experienced something like that. God is a forceful God. He can make things happen. He has that ability. He controls the cosmos. He controls hurricanes and divorces. He controls tornadoes and the smallest little problem your, your kids have that they cry about at night where they can't sleep. He controls those. He's forceful. And God commands these things. So one form of power is force. Now, the second form of power that he has is he has full authority. He can command things to come into being that otherwise aren't into being, to accommodate his plan for your life. He has the ability to create and call and imagine and bring stuff under his authority that weren't under his command. Isaiah chapter uh, 6 uh, uh, verse 4 says, The thresholds shook at the sound of his voice. I love my mom very much, but my dad's voice had just a little bit more power than old mama's did. There's a, there's a unique aspect of God's authority here, and it's proclaimed not only in his, the title of Lord's, but him being on the throne and him high and lifted up. Everything is at his feet, and he commands everything to happen. So we've looked at this. We've looked at God being omnipowerful, all-powerful. Let's think about his presence, what that actually means, his omnipresence. God being everywhere. Well, that's a, a very novel and crazy thing to say. We say that all the time, but we haven't really thought about it. Every square inch of existence, God's presence is there. His, his, the train of his robe fills the temple. I've been in a lot of bad situations in my life, a lot of uh, situations where I'm like, oh, God, if you can get me out of this, I will worship you forever. There's a lot of people even today that can relate. The single mom that raised three boys, like my mom, he's with you. He's there. He, he's with the, the porn addict that is up late at night, the, the peeping Tom, the curious Kathy that's making those clicks late at night. He's there with you. Sometimes that can give you uh, some extreme solace. Sometimes it makes you a little anxious. Oh, God's watching that? Yeah, he is. He's also with you when you don't think he is. And that can give you a lot of security and love and protection in the midst of those times where you feel very vulnerable. God's presence is real and he's everywhere. He's with the single mom who raises three boys. He's with the, the addict. He's with the skeptic who is in here saying, well, God, I... I've been going through the motions for a little while, but are you really real? Are you really king? Do I really believe in you? And he's with those who's lost loved ones because of the pandemic. He's, lost, he's with you, with the businesses, business owners that have lost business because of this pandemic. He's with the single moms or the moms in general who are at home with their kids all the time because they can't go out and, and play. He's with you. His presence is with you. 
So when you combine these two attributes, if you're uh, uh, an engineer in here and you're, you're thinking, well, uh, how can I get an equation in this? Well, this is the equation. Omnipresence, omnipotence equals almighty, okay? If he is everywhere at once and he's all-powerful at once, then there's nothing outside of his ability. He's almighty. He's king. So if God is all-powerful and he sees everything, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? Well, it means that we've been laid waste in front of him. Me and my brothers used to play badminton in the house, and my mom, would, she would uh, despise it. No ball in the house or no, nothing like that. On a, on a cold day, we would, we, we would get the badminton set out and be hitting this badminton, a little birdie across the, across the living room. And I, I swatted one time and hit it. The, the, the birdie went through and hit one of my mom's most favorite paintings. It's, it cracked, it fell, and it shattered. And my mom's at work. We had an hour, maybe two, before she gets back. There is no way that I could cover the sucker up. And when my mom got home, we were laid waste. Woe to us for doing this. As we look at this passage here, what is your response to God's almighty nature? There's two responses that we see here. See, one, the seraphim having a, a proper response. It says in verse, uh, if you could bring up the, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, seraphim having the proper response to this, and it's worship. They're singing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, Lord God Almighty. You, it, it, there's, there's a call to worship. There's this worship that comes out of the seraphim. The second response is humility, and that's on, on the part of Isaiah. Isaiah sees the mighty nature of God, and he begins to evaluate his own existence. He begins to see how small he really is. Isaiah 6, 5 says this. It says, and I said, and I said woe to me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, what does this mean? What is he talking about here? What is he lost? In lips, uh, dwelling amongst the people? What is all this gibberish? What is all this talk here? Well, let's go back and let's think about who Isaiah is. Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah's job is to speak and to teach God's word to the people. And what tool does a prophet or a preacher, what, what is his best tool? What's his mouth? His lips. And he begins to evaluate and think, wow, I, I'm not as special as I thought I was. I'm actually not as special. I'm not, I'm not clean at all compared to these seraphim who are perfect and worshiping the Lord in perfect response. He begins to evaluate himself and say, holy smokes here, I am the one undone. I'm the one laid waste. 
And he begins to think about it, and he begins to see that how guilty he is and how ashamed he is. And he begins to say, hey, not only am I ashamed and messed up and guilty here, but my generation is ashamed, should be ashamed of what we've done. And he's immediately humbled by the presence of God. He sees his unholiness, his unfit nature, and he is wrecked in the sight of an almighty God. He sees his, sees his fallen condition, and he really, uh, what, what his fallen condition really is. And he has nothing to offer the Lord. Isaiah 66, later in the chapter, he, he, or later in the, the, the chapter of, or uh, book of Isaiah, he begins to understand his true uh, stance before the Lord. Isaiah 66 is one of my favorite passages, and it, and it really kind of brings home where all of us are at. It says this. It says, that, uh, thus says the Lord, the heaven, heavens is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house, where, the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The heavens are my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you'll build for me? It's rhetorical. If he owns everything, if he has all-powerful, he has all energy, he's all everywhere, you can't build a house for him. It's rhetorical. Me and my little girl, Wren, yesterday had the opportunity to, to build a gingerbread house together. Um, I, I, uh, I, I enjoyed that time with, with Wren. And after we got done putting all the gummy drops and all the, you know, the, the fun stuff on it, she you know, presented it to me and said, Here, uh, Daddy, this is what I've made for you. I said, well, thank you. Yes, I appreciate it. We're going to display that and put it somewhere nice in the house. But after I began thinking about it, I bought the gingerbread kit. I brought all the gum, gummy bears. Uh, I bought the icing. Uh, I really put it together. Um, what, uh, you know, thank you. Um, it's very similar to this. God, God owns everything. God has everything. Where's the house that you'll build for him? You can't. You can polish up your life. You can make it look good on Instagram. You can, you can even uh, uh, work out and be uh, uh, incredibly in shape and do all the good things and tithe 10% and all this other stuff. But what good are you going to bring? Man, you can't please him. You're, it's not a, you're not able. Here's three things that you can, though. Number one, you can be humble. You can be contrite in spirit or broken in spirit, kind of like Isaiah. And number three, trembling at his word or respecting his word. One thing that we don't see Isaiah do here in this passage of Isaiah chapter 6, going back to Isaiah 6 from Isaiah 66, is he doesn't stand in front of God's presence and try to make his life look better. He doesn't try to polish up his life. He, he sees himself for what he truly is. He accepts his situation. 
uh, me and my wife uh, started a, started a community group back in uh, the spring with uh, with Caleb and Hannah Haney. Um, and uh, uh, me and Caleb have always been good buddies, and 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 uh, uh, Kimmy and Hannah are, are all also great friends. They're dear friends of ours. Uh, Charlotte and Wren are the same age, and they love to play together. And during community group, they play sometimes good, sometimes bad. We, uh, it's kind of a uh, who knows what's what we're going to get. But one night, me and Caleb are downstairs. Me and Caleb are downstairs talking, and Wren and Charlotte are playing together. And I, I love I, I love this. Uh, I learned an incredible lesson from Charlotte today. That day, but I, I, me and Caleb are sitting there talking, and and Wren and Charlotte are playing. All all of a sudden, I hear Wren say "no," and then start bawling, crying. Something happened. We don't know. Caleb knew. We got up. We walked over there, and Caleb says, "Charlotte, did did, did you do what I think you did?" And Charlotte just started crying, and she said. I pull Wren's hair, and and Caleb said, "Well, thank you for being honest and transparent. Thank you for being honest. We're going to have to discipline you." And it was great, great sign. The the fatherly love and affection was there. Great, uh, great uh, father moment. But I learned something from Charlotte in that moment. Number one, she knew her dad saw her, knew her dad saw everything, knew her dad was good, and knew that whatever happened, whatever discipline she was going to get was fair, I guess, for as much a two-year-old can think. But she knew that, that her daddy saw her. We don't need to polish up our lives and say, God, look at my life, how good it is. Make ourselves look better. We don't need to lie about it, try to get acceptance from the Lord. Man, he just loves you. You're his little daughter. You're his son. Beholding God and who he is, Isaiah sees himself and he says, woe is me. I am wrecked. The almighty majestic force, authority, intensity of a train coming at me, and I am tied down to the tracks by my own rebellion, addiction, perversion, and sin. What am I going to do about this? I've got a handful of pebbles, handful of good works. I throw at the train, but man, that don't slow it down. It's still coming. How do I get out of this? This is a dilemma. Well, Isaiah 6, 6 through 7 is where this thing pivots. It says this. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay. What does this mean? A seraphim, let's break this down here. A seraphim fly, flying to Isaiah with a burning coal touching his lips. This sounds like something out of uh, Game of Thrones. What is this? What does this mean? Well, a seraphim coming to Isaiah, coming down to Isaiah, is very symbolic of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. 
However, this was written 600 years before Jesus walked the earth. Pretty prophetic, huh? Isaiah did his job pretty well. 600 years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Isaiah says this seraphim brings tong, uh, uh, takes tongs from the altar, takes a coal, and touches this prophet's lips, and he cleans him, makes him pure. Well, what does the coal mean? Like I said, everything in this passage is symbolic. You may be, so what does the coal mean? Well, as we begin to peel this back, there's a number of things here. You also might be saying, well, wait, wait, Jake, before you get ahead of yourself, how does this solve the big dilemma? Well, the coal in this passage of Scripture says that is, if we think about it, what it is, is it's a burnt piece of material. It, it's, it's usually when a, when a burnt offering is, uh, is done, it's, it's burnt and it's laid upon, upon the altar. Whenever the seraphim takes the coal from the altar and it touches the lips, think about the coal being Jesus Christ and what happened to him. Jesus was laid waste on Calvary. He was slaughtered, and he was the burnt offering that atoned for our sin. He atoned for not only my sin, but your sin, for Isaiah's sin, for Donald Trump's sin, for Joe Biden's sin, and for the worst death row inmate at Brushy Mountain Penitentiary. The coal in this passage cleans us. It wipes away that guilt that makes you want to appear better. Oh, I'm not good enough. I've got to appear better. I've got to make myself look better. I've got to have my life in order. My kids have got to be in order. My life's got to be perfect. So why is Christmas and Advent important? Well, seraphim flying to us is, in, is very symbolic of the incarnation of Christ. Thinking about it, 600 years later, Jesus coming to earth and dying on a, uh, coming to earth as a baby, living as a fully God, fully man, and dying on a cross for our sins. Really, without it, there's no verse 6 and 7, we are just woe is me and we are laid waste. So what do we do with this passage? Well, I think... A little gospel application here as we close as we close down. Number one, I think if if you've never really seen the almighty nature of God and really seen what He's done for you, I think I think surrendering all to Him. I think understanding that that old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain; He washed it white as snow. He washed your sin white as snow and surrendering your allegiance to the Lord. That's number one. Number two, if you're in here and, and, and you're agreeing with me and you're saying, man, uh, God, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for, for sending a little red dot and saving me and, and helping me and getting, getting me out of a situation here where this big dilemma of my sin was carrying me to hell. 
I think this gospel season, or this Christmas season, I think you, you step back and you, you begin to, to thank the Lord for, for, for his love for you. For, for, and, and really begin to worship in a whole new way. Man, I love the word worship. Breaking it down, it's worth-ship. Worth. Giving something worth or meaning. Man, this Christmas season, put worth and meaning. Worship towards our Lord for who he is and for what he's done. And we serve a great God. And Advent season is perfect time to celebrate it. That's all I've got. Let me pray for us, and we will uh, do something new. I don't know what we're going to do next, but let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message. God, I feel like I was all over the place. Um, I don't know what exactly I said, but God, I ask that you just be here amongst, among us and uh, help us to grow uh, with, this, with this message. Uh, we're humbled by this, this passage of Scripture. There's so much imagery and symbology here, God. It's, it's hard to go into in-depth just in 30, 35 minutes. And I pray that we take this back and we study it and we chew on it and we, we let it marinate in our heart. And God, help us to be changed from it. And in Jesus' name, amen.